This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The bus station stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Yes. You are listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Ratio Christi, a college student apologetics alliance. This is the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And today we have a great guest, the upcoming, or I guess current, international director of Ratio Christi. So we will be getting to him in a minute. I'm very excited to have him on. But we want to remind everybody that they can check us out at our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can find archived shows there. If you like podcasts, you can find us on iTunes or Double Twist. And be sure and check out our Facebook page. Well, also check out the RatioChristi.org website, too. We have a quote of the week. Kirk, you'll like this one. This one is sent to us courtesy of Apologetics 315, a great website and a resource for all things apologetics. And this is a quote from St. Augustine. He says, If you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Mm -hmm. Great great quote there from Augustine. Didn't they name a city after him? Did they? In Florida? Lots of places, I think. (laughs) Lots of schools, too, and universities and things like that. Yeah, right. (laughs) So, uh, let's see. Uh, Let's remind people also that... There is still time to sign up for Worldview Academies. Go to worldview.org. And from June through July, there are camps for junior high and high school age and uh, wonderful work being done over there at Worldview Academy. So we highly recommend that you get your kids out there so they can become educated on some of the different worldviews that are vying for the attention of people in the world. Uh, Let's see. And then finally, a news item. Oh, you found one. Well, this is from Reasons to Believe, our friends at Reasons to Believe. It says, the universe is designed to produce carbon and oxygen. And this is based on some new research. I'll just read you the synopsis here. It says, astronomer Fred Hoyle postulated the existence of an excited state of carbon called the Hoyle state in order to explain how stars could produce the amount of carbon seen in the universe. Recent theoretical work demonstrated how scientists could calculate the Hoyle state from first principles. The scientists utilizing these results to launch further studies of how variations of other fundamental parameters like the average mass of the lightest two quarks or the fine structure constant affect the Hoyle state. 
The results of those studies show that the fine-tuning of carbon production is tied to fundamental quantities, which means they cannot be explained by natural processes and are evidence for an intelligent and caring designer of the universe. Let me uh, just also read this, the final paragraph of the article. If you're interested in it, go to the Reasons to Believe website, which is uh, reasons.org, and take a look at it there. But they say, most scientists recognize that the universe appears designed to support life and that many quantities in the universe appear fine-tuned. One response argues that the universe only appears designed rather than actually showing the work of a a divine creator. This argument holds that some merit for fine-tuning in derived quantities because sometimes a more fundamental analysis readily explains the fine-tuned value. But tying the fine-tuning to fundamental qualities takes the teeth out of this objection and buttresses the argument for the God of the Bible that the God of the Bible designed this universe in preparation for humanity. So that is from Reasons to Believe. Gee, isn't that an amazing coincidence that the Hoyle effect has got the same name as Fred Hoyle? Yeah, isn't that? It must it must be designed that way. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> what a coinkydink. <laughs> Just like universes appearing out of nothing. Wow. It's magic. <laughs> well, listen, Kirk. You know, there are some – you ever been to these, oh, dinner talks where they're going to have their – they have some guest and he's going to get up there and they're, he's going to talk while you're having the food. So they serve the, they serve the food and by the time they finish giving the introduction for the person, your food is cold. <laughs> well, that's what we're facing with our next guest. Let me welcome to <laughs> Evidence for Faith, John Stewart. John, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Thanks, Keith and Kirk. Good afternoon to you guys. Well, John has a terrific uh, bio. Uh, He goes a long way back. Um, He is an apologist. He's a lawyer, author, award-winning radio personality. He co-hosted the nationally syndicated Bible Answer Man show that I used to listen to with Walter Martin. So there is a name from the past. So we got to get into that. But he also was professor of law and apologetics at Simon Greenleaf University, another great name in the history of all things apologetics, and was assistant dean of the law program there. He also was assistant director of Creation Research Institute, a must-know name for anyone interested in the evidences for Christianity and apologetics and Christian worldview. He is now the international director of Ratio Christi. Also, it says, John, you are an allied attorney with the Alliance Defending Freedom, and you were involved in the California Proposition 8 case, right? Right. So that is great. So you have a really diverse, really interesting background. I want to talk about all of it. So, But let's, since you are here as the international director for Ratio Christi, let's talk about that first. I understand you just got back from South Africa. Was that in, as part of your work with Ratio Christi? 
Uh, yes, it was. Uh, actually, my first international trip on behalf of Rasho Christie. We've just begun to open up the international branch of Rasho Christie. We're on about 100 university campuses in the U.S. right now, and the international demand has been extensive. And even jumping the gun down in South Africa, one of the universities there, North, Northwest University, their Potchestrom campus outside of Johannesburg, already had a chapter sort of unofficially working. So we went to visit them and to about five other campuses to uh, essentially start to work there where we're going to try to put apologists on the university campuses and bring uh, truth to those universities and redeem those campuses for Christ. And that's wonderful. Now, John, you have been in the apologetics world for a long time. If you worked with Walter Martin, what do you think of Ratio Christi and this movement in the universities? Well, what I'm seeing is because uh, Europe started this and now the United States is becoming so secular and media have jumped on that bandwagon and we're just getting fed a whole load of, load of this uh, from all directions in the university campus, where a lot of Christian parents especially find they send their kids there, and statistics are, are very daunting that up to 75% of professing Christians who enter the university will walk away from their faith at some point before they leave school. And that, that's a tragedy. So that tells us that the churches, our, our high schools, are not preparing our kids for the intellectual battlefield that is the modern university campus. So Ratio Christi is designed not merely to be a group of, a place of fellowship for Christians, although it is that, but there are other many wonderful campus ministries that can have fellowship. We're there specifically to deal with the intellectual challenges. And so both for the Christian who needs to, let's say, be reassured that we do have the truth and the evidence is on our side, but also for the unbelievers, the ones who are inquiring, who may have had misconceptions about what Christianity does in fact affirm, and Rasha Christie is setting up these chapters on campuses to meet those needs, and to be there to tell people about the truth and the evidence for the Christian faith. Yeah, well, it's a, just a tremendous explosion, and uh, I'm very excited personally to be part of Ratio Christi, and I'm working here locally with my uh, nearby state college, Stockton College, in New Jersey, and it is so exciting to see how these young Christian men and women are becoming turned on to the gospel, to Christianity, because they are finally experiencing intellectual satisfaction with the truth of Christianity, and they just want to witness all the time. You know, they're constantly now witnessing to their peers, to their professors. Um, it's just amazing. I don't have to beat the drum. Let's get out there. You know, let's spread the message. When they see the intellectual integrity uh, that is sustaining Christianity, boy, they're all on board. And the, the numbers just keep growing and our converts and things, it's so exciting. Keith, you're right. The time is now. This is a wave. This is a movement of God. And I think it is, to a large extent, from the human perspective in response to the secularism. But what we're finding is that not only do the non-Christians say when they hear an intelligently presented gospel, I've never heard this before, we're hearing this from Christians who were raised in the church. They never knew about the evidence for our faith, evidence for the resurrection, evidence for the reliability of the Bible, the scientific evidence for creationism, for the, an intelligent designer. So this really is a wave, and no human can take responsibility 
responsibility for this. I really believe it's a divine movement and excited that you're part of that as well, Keith, because if there's any place that needs to be redeemed, it's the university campus that has been a feeding ground to spread, shall we say, uh, skepticism and undermining many people's faith without giving uh, any fair shake to the other side. Right. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And it's 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 worse and getting worse as far as the open atheism, the secular left-wing thinking that is is dominating the university, but it's also spreading down into the high schools now. I you know, for people who are not talking to students who are not talking to young high school children and junior high children, they probably have no idea how bad things are getting in the public schools. But now, uh, instead of just open atheism on the college campus, there is now open atheism and promotion of uh, atheistic thinking and all that goes with it in high school, in junior high, teachers are recruiting for secularism and secular leftist causes. It's it's truly ama- an amazing thing to behold. I, I, I wouldn't have expected it from my own high school upbringing in the 70s. <laughs> and notice how quickly things have changed. And yes. Ten years ago, even something like uh, same-sex marriage was just on the horizon in Massachusetts. It was, I think, 2004 that became the first state in the U.S. And how quickly now where if you say you stand for marriage between a man and a woman, people look at you like, where have you been? Don't you know that everybody's on board? And all these political flip-floppers who essentially have no conviction, truth is truth. But, of course, they want to know which way the political winds are blowing. So when someone's going to stand up for truth, what we're finding, in fact, next month, for example, I'm speaking to a group of uh, homeschool parents and students in the state of Iowa. And as I've talked to homeschool students and their parents before, I find out they have a very surface understanding of Christianity. They're in no way ready to combat the intellectual attacks they're going to face at the university. But we have plenty of ammunition, great books that are written, great tapes available, great radio programs like yours or the Bible Answer Men or some of these. So there's plenty of resources. We just need to wake up the parents especially to the needs and make sure the kids know where they can go and they can get answers to their questions. They can find out that the truth is on the side of people of faith. Absolutely. Well, um, let's jump into some of your history. I want people to get to know you better uh, as a person and some of your background. Um, and also, I'm a big fan of Walter Martin's, um, uh, the late Walter Martin. Can you tell us about your work with him? Sure. Yeah, in fact, one of my thrills, uh, Walter Martin, when I was in Southern California back in the early 1970s, which will kind of date me, came to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa when I was meeting in a tent when they'd outgrown their first building. And Walter Martin did a series on the cults. That was my first introduction to him, and just a brilliant orator, and he was able to feel all the questions from all the people, the Mormons who showed up or the other uh, groups that he was uh, discussing. And uh, right from the beginning, it was exciting to know that uh, someone like that was out there. So I studied up on Dr. Martin, read a lot of his materials, and then in uh, 1980, uh, Dr. John Work Montgomery started Simon Greenleaf University. Actually, then it was called Simon Greenleaf School of Law. And it offered a program, uh, JD program, for people who wanted to be lawyers, but also 
a Master of Arts program for people who wanted to become trained apologists. So it was an MA in apologetics. And we've had people go through there like Frank Beckwith and people like that. And one of the faculty members was Walter Martin, and it actually had been teaching alongside him, a fellow faculty member at a, a seminary in Anaheim even before that. So through those years, we were, let's just say we were friends. And then in about 1986, I was asked to do a radio program for a local Southern California station, and they, the, the station liked what I was doing. They gave me my own Sunday afternoon show. It was a three-hour call-in show called Let's Talk About the Bible. And from that, Christian Research had heard about me. And the short version is that because Walter was on the road speaking quite a bit, and he also had uh, diabetes, so his health from time to time wasn't the best, that the people who were promoting his national radio program, the Bible Answer Man, uh, wanted somebody to help with the program and co-host it. And so they actually contacted me for that. I was honored, and they hired me in. And so I spent about two years uh, co-hosting that program. I probably did about 80% of the shows during my time there. And every now and then, Walter and I would do it together, but most of the time I would do it about three or four days a week, and he'd do it one or two days a week. And it was a real blessing. He had a great, sharp mind. Uh, just a tremendous recall ability. And those are the things that you need if you're going to be uh, standing there taking the, the, the accusations or the questions from people who are calling in. And But it was a lot of fun, too. So it was a, just a great opportunity to actually partner with someone that I'd looked up to as one of the true uh, leaders in apologetics. Well, those were those were great days in Southern California. I remember them because I was there during the seventies and eighties and listened to KBRT all the time. And okay. let's see, Rich Bueller was on the air, and uh, Walter Martin had his program that was uh, terrific. And Walter Martin, we should mention, is author of one of the great works on cults and is still a resource today. The Kingdom of the Cults and. Uh, you know, in my mind, he was one of the only guys out there doing uh, apologetics uh, in that way. Do you, were were things? It seems like there weren't that many of you out there in those days. It, it was sort of a, a small fraternity of people, and that was one of the reasons for starting Simon Greenleaf. Uh, Dr. John Work Montgomery uh, is an apologist from way back, and he had the vision for the school. And between he and Dr. Martin and a few others who were around at that time, uh, Josh McDowell, of course, was doing a lot in the universities, and Josh was, I believe, on the board of Simon Greenleaf. So essentially this was the cream of the crop as it existed in 1980. And since then, I think now there are about five or six, maybe even seven universities in the United States that are offering a Master of Arts in Apologetics. So that just shows the interest and the need is there. So these were the pioneer days, so it was a rare atmosphere. And then not long after that, along came people like Greg Kokel and some of the others that are out there today. Uh, William Lane Craig was doing his studies about that time and emerging. And so some of these people now have become uh, you know, quite uh, popular and well-known. But those were the formative years, and Walter would take on anybody, whether they're atheists, cultists, uh, secularists, or, or even aberrant uh, Christians. So he was somebody that stood fast for the Word of God, and it gave me uh, just a tremendous, tremendous insight into how we need to do what the Bible admonishes us all to do, which is to be ready to give an answer and to stand for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, as Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. 
Right. Yeah. He was he was a great man. He he debated uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare, and I remember I I became a Christian in 1978 reading Mere Christianity, and so I immediately had an affinity to the intellectual side of Christianity and began reading Francis Schaeffer and. Um, wow, would have loved to have known about that MA program in uh, apologetics, although I was uh, still just working on bachelors uh, back then. But, um, boy, that is wonderful. And Frank Beckwith went there. That is terrific. I do remember hearing about Simon Greenleaf's school and it getting started, and I guess it's still going strong out there. Is that right? Well, actually it is, but it's in two more forms. Simon Greenleaf, the law program merged with Trinity University, so now that's Trinity Law School in Orange County, California. Then the MA program was taken over by Biola University. So what started at Simon uh. Greenleaf is now at Biola, and they offer a MA in apologetics with some uh, just a superb faculty there at Biola. So oh, people absolutely. are looking to that. That's a, a school that you'd want to check out. Uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte is also another great school. There's, like I say, four or five others. Liberty has a program, some top-flight people like Gary Habermas. So uh, there are tough choices to make out there, depending on how someone wants to pursue studying the Scriptures, studying the defense of the faith. But a lot's happened in uh, the 30 or so years since Simon Greenleaf got started, and it's good to see that. Yeah, in fact, John, I saw a list recently of the top 10 MA programs. So there's even more than 10 now. And number one was my alma mater, Biola. So, oh, you're um, a Biola guy, too. I didn't know that. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, I um, I, I did my MA um, uh, with all those great names out there and finished it in 07. Great. Good to hear that. Yes. And so since you're a Biola grad, I'll correct you on the city in Florida is called Augustine, but the church father, we pronounce that Augustine. So you get oh, you're right. And I should that. know that because okay. my boys went to a school, St. Augustine. That's, oh, that's a pedantic teacher in me, so we're going to assess you a two-stroke penalty like Tiger Woods was hit with yesterday. So uh, you'll know from now on that it's Augustine and Augustine. <laughs> there you go. Actually, that those points should be against me because I mentioned it, didn't I? Ah, that's who said it. Okay, we'll uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll let that one go. I steered I Keith wrong. Guy, I said that to somebody in South Africa, and they didn't take kindly to my pedantic uh, pronunciation. They said, "Look, when I was teaching graduate school, I always had to make sure precision was something ever before them." And uh, although it's not going to matter in eternity, so well, my wife is a fourth grade uh, elementary school teacher, and she likes to correct me also. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be careful when you do it and how you do it. But that's the old university professor in me that uh, I was a tough grader on papers because I wanted people to do it right. One of the things we did at Simon Greenleaf, and I would love to see more of this at the high school and college level and graduate level. When the people were in the MA program, in my particular course, which was on the reliability of scriptures, uh, I would have them uh, do a paper where they would have to argue for a particular point of view, such as J the John, the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John. But they wouldn't not only have to write the paper, they would have to defend their position. And sometimes it would be myself, uh, Walter Martin, and John Warwick Montgomery sitting there. We put on robes like we were an appellate tribunal. And so the student had to stand at the lectern and then begin to give their presentation. And just like an appellate court or this U.S. Supreme Court, we'd interrupt them. 
And this is how the real world works. You don't get to give a 30-minute presentation to a non-Christian, and then they, you come up for air. They're going to fire questions. You answer question and answer. And this was a way to try to get their feet wet in thinking on your feet. And to the person, most of them were scared to death to do this, but when it was over, they said, that was a great experience, because that's more like the real world. You're going to get questions fired at you. You may or may not know all the answers, but you have to be able to think on your feet. And I think that's what the Scripture tells us to do, to be ready. And unfortunately, the vast majority of believers, I don't think they're ready. And that's what, that we have a ways to go in making sure that happens, that they are ready. Absolutely. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are speaking with John Stewart, our international director of Ratio Christi. And John, you also in your history, and I do remember listening to your radio show, by the way, um, you we're part of the Christian Research Institute, and that's another important name that people who are looking into the evidence for Christianity definitely need to know about. They produce the Christian Research Journal, and I remember reading articles from you uh, in that also. So can you tell us a little bit about Christian Research Institute and your work there and the journal? Sure. Uh, yeah, the, the, we use the initial CRI, and that's this is the organization Walter Martin founded. And so we had the Bible Answer Man radio program, which was a national program to answer Bible questions. But the organization itself had a group of researchers put out the journal. And uh, about the time I was doing the program, uh, Walter had met a young man from uh, somewhere in the south and brought him on the board because he had done a lot of work on evangelism and memory work, and his name was Hank Hanegraaff. So when I was doing the program, Hank Hanegraaff was uh, on the board of CRI, and along with a couple of others. And then when I jumped from CRI to do a program on KKLA in Los Angeles, which at the time was the largest Christian talk station in America, uh, in 1989, about a year after I started doing that, when Walter Martin passed away, and then Hank stepped in. He's been doing the Bible Answer Man program ever since. Mm. So that is the organization, the Christian Research Institute, which now I believe is headquartered in Charlotte, uh, and it's the organization Walter Martin founded, essentially to give information to believers about uh, Christianity, about the cults, and about non-Christian movements, so that we can be informed. Yeah, and definitely highly recommend uh, the journal. It's a high level of scholarship and uh, not your typical um, reading for the average Christian, I guess. And, and I think we need to have scholarly works, but we also need to make things practical. In fact, mm. as I spoke this morning at my uh, home church where I am here in Iowa right now, I moved my headquarters from California to Iowa back in October, so I'm in the heartland of America but I talked about the need to be practical, and indeed, as uh, Walter Martin himself used to say, quoting one of his mentors, Donald Gray Barnhouse, that uh, Jesus said, uh, actually Barnhouse said, take the hay out of the loft and put it down where the cows can get to it. <laughs> or to quote the late J. Vernon McGee, Jesus said, feed my sheep, not feed my giraffes. So let's try to make things understandable for the average person. Now, that doesn't mean there's no place for in-depth scholarship. 
In fact, some of the things you started with with Fred Hoyle and science makes my eyes glaze over. So if anybody <laughs> listening is interested in defending the faith, but when it comes to some of these deep issues of science, you kind of your your you start your forehead starts blinking. You know, no vacancy, nobody home. I can relate to that because science, I love it, but that is not my strong suit. So I'm trying to learn about that. But we want things to be practical, and so that's why I try to boil it down to look apologetics. It's a species of evangelism, and defending the faith means proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and the focus is on Jesus. Now, people may have obstacles to faith, such as, gee, what about uh, the reliability of the Bible? Hasn't it been changed down through the years? How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? All these types of things. And we're to give answers to those questions, then bring them back to the essential question. And that's the question the Philippian jailer asked in Acts 16.30, what must I do to be saved? And then, of course, the answer is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So we want to get people to the cross. If they have problems or obstacles, we answer their questions, resolve their objections, and bring them to the cross of Christ. So whether that needs to be through a technical journal or through a basic testimony of God loves you, Christ died for you, and he changed my life, whatever it takes, as Paul said to the Corinthians, I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So whatever technique it takes to get the word out, technical, non-technical, we need it all so that people will understand what God desires of us. Well, you have something that you call the two-minute apologetics, which uh, is for those situations where you know you get onto an elevator and you get a chatting with somebody or you share a cab or they're on the bus seat next to you for a little bit and you've got two minutes. What What's that all about? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Keith. I'm actually thinking of writing a book on this. I remember uh, there was a pastor a long time ago, the chaplain of Bourbon Street, he used to say that he liked to evangelize in an elevator because they're already going up, so you might as well talk to him. <laughs> and one of the important things is, if you think about Jesus' technique, for example, he meets in John chapter 4, the Gospel of John, the woman at the well. Well, she's there for water, so Jesus starts talking to her about water and living water, so he brings a common bridge, a, a something that would identify, and so the first thing to do is, if you're going to do two-minute apologetics, is find out what common bridge might be there. So if you're in a building in an elevator, yeah, you can start with that. Hey, we're going up. But one of these days, uh, I believe that Jesus is coming back. I mean, you can start that boldly. Or you can you have to at some point ask people, do they really believe there is a God? Let them answer that. And then you can start asking them the why questions. But ultimately, you're not there to try to explain to them the age of the earth. You're not trying to explain to them the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're trying to explain to them that without Jesus, you're lost. So you keep wanting to bring it back to the person of Jesus Christ and not get too far afield. And one of the things I teach when I teach apologetics is don't give people problems. Don't assume they have problems. Go right to the clincher. So what I like to do, though, is to throw out some questions about, you know, what is it you believe? Is there a God? And has he revealed himself? Or if I want to ask him in a two-minute apologetics, well, who do you think Jesus is? And then if they say, well, I think he was a good moral teacher, say, well, that's really good, but you know, he claimed to be God. If he claimed to be God and he wasn't, you know, how could he be a good moral teacher? And that's part of the trilemma. And you could quote there C.S. Lewis, who said that you can spit on him as a demon from hell, 
or you can follow at his feet and worship him as God, but let's not have any of that patronizing nonsense about him being a good moral teacher. He didn't leave that option open. So Jesus wants to put people in a corner to make a decision, and that's why I think Billy Graham rightly called their magazine Decision. So we want people to make decisions. Now, in an elevator in a two-minute cab ride, uh, typically people don't know you. They may not trust you for very deep, important things, but that's an opportunity to sow the seed. I had a conversation with a fellow who came over to install a cable television, actually repair it at my house in California. He looked at my shelf and said, oh, you're a student of Scripture. And I said, yes, I am. He says, well, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And, of course, knowing my background, you could probably appreciate, Keith, I started salivating at that point. So I said, <laughs> oh, so, so you're a Jehovah's Witness. I said, let me just, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. So I reached for my copy of a Jehovah's Witness Bible, the New World Translation, and I said, wouldn't you agree with me that only Jehovah should be worshipped? He said, oh, yeah. I said, let's just go to Scripture. In Luke 4.8, here's Jesus saying the same thing. Only God, Jehovah, should be worshipped. You agree, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, well, then let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. So I turn there, and in their own translation it says, And God the Father, unto the angels, he said, to worship the Son. All of a sudden, this guy's eyes got big, and I said, So, now we've already established only Jehovah should be worshipped, and here's the Father clearly telling the angels to worship Jesus. So, so what do you say about that? Wouldn't you agree then that unless the Bible's contradictory, the Son is Jehovah. He's Jehovah the Son. This man was speechless. So in really less than a minute... I sowed seeds of doubt into the teachings he'd been brought into through the Watchtower, and I explained to him that you've been misled. And if you're a student of Scripture, check this out, come back and let's talk. Well, he didn't come back, but that just shows how in a minute or less, you can turn somebody around and actually change their whole outlook when you show them some of the glaring errors in what they're embracing, and they're holding the half end, the wrong end of a half-truth. Wonderful. Well, it's certainly true that we need to be constantly looking for ways that we can maximize opportunities to share the gospel. And even though we sometimes will excuse ourselves because we say, well, I'm just doing pre-evangelism, I think that that is uh, no excuse. Um, We still need to um, put the gospel in there and sometimes it may seem forced but it's actually not if if you're not doing you know when i do talks um i put the gospel in and um you know that just keeps me uh focused on what i'm there for well you know Keith, well, most of us are a little bit shy sometimes we don't want to be confrontive but yet if somebody's job is as a salesperson and they go out and they show the product, never give the person a chance to buy it. They're not really a salesperson. They're a professional visitor. And when we're called upon to sow the seed and let the Holy Spirit use us, if someone is ready, and part of that's being sensitive, and I think evangelism, apologetics, it's an art and a science. And the science is the evidence that we need to be aware of that supports the Christian faith and the accuracy of the Scripture. But the art of that is to know how much to say, when to say it, and how to say it to best and most effectively reach the person we're talking to. So I think it's good to give an altar call when you feel so led and give people a chance to act on it or respond to it. So I think you're right, Keith, that you ought to work the gospel into your presentations and perhaps give more opportunities for people to stand up, come forward, raise their hand, whatever it's going to take, to get them started on the road to where they're going to publicly uh, confess Christ. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know Kirk was excited to talk with you about the defense of marriage, and marriage is one of the things we like to talk about on this show because we like to show how the Christian truths, the Christian worldview leads to benefits for the individual. For those who are considering becoming Christians, you know, know that this is not just a kind of empty uh, intellectual assent, but when you become a Christian and you start living according to uh, the biblical truth, that that good things begin to happen to you when you're not uh, when you're when you're matching reality, when your life begins to match the way things really are, and the benefits of marriage are have been well documented. So, um, you actually worked as an allied attorney with. Alliance Defending Freedom and were involved in the Proposition 8 uh, case. So, uh, Yeah, I'm particularly interested in uh, Mr. Stewart's opinion. I know he doesn't uh, put himself across as a prophet or anything, but um, how do you uh, – do you have any particular feelings about how this uh, – the Defense of Marriage Act and the uh, California Proposition 8 case that are before the Supreme Court, how these cases may turn out? Good question, Kirk. Let me set this up first, and I'll first talk about Proposition 8. And as a California attorney, back in the year 2000, uh, California voters uh, have direct democracy. You can sign enough petitions to put an issue on the ballot, and the people can vote yes or no. And the question was, should marriage be between a man and a woman? Or actually, it's 14 words. Marriage should, on- should only be, in California, should only be recognized between a man and a woman. And the 62% of the people said yes. And so that became the law of California, which it already was, but that confirmed the law. Well, then somebody thought, well, wait a minute, that's only a state statute. So they appealed it and said that violates our state constitution, such principles as equal protection. And this wound its way through the courts, got to our state Supreme Court in May of 2008, and the state Supreme Court, in a four to three vote, decided they knew better than 62% of the California voters, and on a four to three vote said, nope, we're going to impose same sex marriage on California. Well, just a, a few months later, on the ballot was the same 14 words, only this time as a constitutional amendment which would put it above the reach of the court, and that passed. And Prop 8 was a a battle that was fought, and $40 million was spent by each side. But even liberal California, 52% said, yes, marriage is a man and a woman. Well, that got appealed to our state Supreme Court in California, but they finally upheld that. Gee, thank you. But the same day it was upheld, the people who wanted same-sex marriage ran to federal court. And they said, under the federal United States Constitution, there's a right to same-sex marriage. Hmm, gee, I've been a lawyer for like three decades. I never saw that. But that's what their claim was. So they found a sympathetic uh, homosexual judge, uh, one Vaughn Walker, and he held a trial on this issue up in San Francisco. Now, Judge Walker, for some reason, didn't feel that even though he could personally benefit from his decision by the fact that he had been in a relationship with a man for 10 years at the time he sat for this hearing, failed to disclose that he was a homosexual in a relationship, but went ahead, held a trial, and for some reason, this one man said, I know better than 7 million California voters, Proposition 8 violates the federal Constitution. Well, that was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. If you know anything about the Ninth Circuit, the U.S. Supreme Court has a button that they just punch, reverse, 
because the Ninth Circuit is the most reverse court in the history of our country. And the most reverse judge on that most reverse court is Stephen Reinhardt. And so who did they pick for a three-judge panel to decide the issue of whether Judge Walker striking Prop 8 was accurate or was correct or not? Well, Stephen Reinhardt, along with one other liberal and one conservative. By the way, Reinhardt's wife was the head of the ACLU in Southern California for 40 years. Yeah, we really have a level playing field. And somehow, two to one, the Ninth Circuit upheld Judge Walker for other reasons, and there's some nuances there, and therefore striking Prop 8. Well, there was a stay that was issued, so no same-sex marriages have taken place since those decisions, and that's the case that was argued a couple weeks ago before the U.S. Supreme Court. I suspect that unless they dismiss this on procedural grounds, which I won't go into, might bore your listeners, I believe it will at least be five to four upholding the right of California citizens to uh, proclaim what social policy should be, in this case, the definition of marriage. So I think that will be five to four in favor of California's Prop 8 being up. Upheld. Uh, as far as the Defense of Marriage Act, that's the other issue that the day later the U.S. Supreme Court heard their oral arguments. That was signed into law by President Clinton back in 1996. And of course, I have in front of me some quotes that I should rip, rattle off to you really quickly. How about this one? I am not for same sex marriage. I have said that publicly. I would not vote for same sex marriage. Close quote. John Kerry. How about this one? I personally believe the legal institution of marriage is a union between a man and a woman. Senator Dianne Feinstein from California. And how about this? I believe that marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. I have had occasion in my life to defend marriage, to stand up for marriage. I take umbrage at anyone that might suggest those of us who worry about amending the Constitution are less committed to the sanctity of marriage or to the fundamental bedrock principle that it exists between a man and a woman going back into the mists of history, Hillary Clinton. (laughs) So there are three quotes from what I would call major flip-floppers with no conviction. Now, as Christians, we believe in revealed truth, and it doesn't change tomorrow. What was true yesterday is true today and is true tomorrow. Jesus referred to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where he said in Matthew 19, For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cling to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. Marriage is a man and a woman. Always has been. It's pre-political. And to say we should redefine marriage to suit those that want to belong or have the name doesn't make logical, historical, and certainly not any moral sense. As far as DOMA, I believe the one provision in DOMA will probably be stricken. I think the court was looking askance at DOMA. Uh, I'm not sure what the ultimate effect will be if one aspect of DOMA denying federal benefits uh, to same-sex couples who are married under their state uh, laws, whether that will stand. So I'm expecting DOMA, at least one provision of it, will be stricken probably six to three, perhaps five to four. And uh, President Obama has done quite a job putting some uh, progressives on the courts. I don't expect that his appointees are going to, uh, side with logic, history, reason, or morality. And one thing I w- might want to mention, I don't know if this helps at all, Kirk, but one of the biggest scams today is, well, it's the old adage that says, he who frames the question controls the debate. And it's being framed as marriage equality. Wait a minute. In what sense are two men or two women the same as a 
man and a woman who have procreative potential. And, of course, the objections brought up, well, what if they don't have kids? Look, we never inquire into whether people want to have kids or not, but even their aspects to traditional marriage that uh, transcend reproduction. But having a optimal parenting for children, an environment that's complementary, in essence, traditional man-woman marriage not only is it rooted in history, it's rooted in biology. It's rooted in complementary body parts. That's what marriage is at its very root, and it's been the bedrock of society. And for us in 10 years to jump in, and this is, by the way, is one of the questions of Judge uh, Alito where he said, look, uh, this hasn't been around as long as the Internet and cell phones. Is this something we need to rush into and make a ruling for the entire country? So that's why I'm hoping there will be at least some judicial restraint, not striking down an act of Congress like DOMA, but I'm afraid they will strike at least one portion of it. So, uh, and by the way, do you remember the decision on Obamacare, if we can call it that, that Justice Roberts participated in? And people wondered, how could he side with upholding that? Right. Well, part of his reasoning was, let's not strike a law enacted by Congress if there's any, any scintilla of reasoning that we could uphold it, which should be their standard anyway. Well, the same thing applies to DOMA. There's plenty of good reasons to say that there's a benefit to society to have marriage limited to a man and a woman and, and the benefits from the federal government to apply only to them. States are free to do what they want to do. Um, and by the way, when Prop 8 was passed in California, people may not know this, but a same-sex couple had the exact same rights as a married couple in California that California confers on a married couple before Prop 8. And they have them today under a domestic partnership. If you register, you have the exact same rights that California confers. It's just not called marriage. It's called a domestic partnership. So it's not an issue of rights. It's an issue of acceptance and recognition to say that all expressions of sexuality are equal. In essence, there is no moral standard. And I think we need to fight that tooth and nail to say we believe there is a standard of morality. And by the way, folks, there will be laws that will impose morality. The only question, whose morality? Will it be a secular morality or will it be a biblically, historically, traditional morality? Those are our issues. Wonderful. Well, it, it is amazing to see how quickly the mood of the country uh, seems to have changed. And I, I saw a breakdown of age, the uh, a change amongst different age groups. And it does look like this is coming from our young people. And, of course, that goes right back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show is the secularization of the public school system. You know, it first in college and now working its way all the way down uh, into high school and middle school. And also, I think this also, the, the rapidity of the conversion shows us the power of the moral argument because that is the way that the homosexual rights advocates are positioning this as rights, as morality, uh, as uh, fairness and so I, I have said in the past that I think one of our best arguments for marriage is the moral argument that it is unjust to give the rewards of marriage, the authentication of marriage to those who have not sacrificed for the good of society as marriage is. Marriage is a man and a woman bonding together 
contracting together and sacrificing their personal interests, right, to raise children for the next generation. They don't have to do that. They could be living on their own. They could do just like many uh People in poor economic situations are doing now where they get paid by the government to have children without being married. That is one of the things that people could do. But no, instead, men and women are sacrificing their own personal interests, getting married and raising families, which is very costly, very uh, self-denying. And that ought to be rewarded by uh, society and it is unjust to try to say that those who don't sacrifice in that way uh, ought to be given the same kind of uh, accolades and uh, held to the same um, uh, standard, I guess. Wasn't it true also that if you're going to couch this argument as a matter of marriage equality, as Mr. Stewart just said, if they throw DOMA out the window because of that idea, isn't it opening the floodgates to down the road? Is somebody coming along and saying, well, I want to, I want, um, polygamy equality and I want, you know, um, I mean, polygamy, incest, pedophilia, all kinds of uh, what we would call sexual perversions, all of a sudden they can claim, well, marriage equality, I want to marry my sister, or I'm, you know, it could get really ridiculous, couldn't it? Well, I don't have time to tell you about a debate I had, but in essence, I got the other person to admit that there's nothing wrong with incest in his, in his view. And if we talk about polygamy, people say, oh, that's just a slippery slope. Well, here it's logical that if you're going to redefine marriage, why stop it too? So you right. actually see these same implications, and, and you're right on in saying if, if we start redefining it, then why not go beyond that? And that's why it's not nice to toy with uh, God's uh, creation to establish society, which is the family and marriage. Do you think the Supreme Court judges will understand this? Well, they will, but some of them have a philosophy and a worldview that is accommodating to something other than a theistic point of view. And so they're going to look at it from the standpoint of, well, human freedom, sexual freedom, sexual liberty, and they don't see any distinction. And I'm afraid that uh, some of them are going to be vehement in that uh, because of their uh, their views. John, um, we have a just a, a minute or so left, so if you can uh, tell people how... Uh, they can keep in touch with you or they can get uh, books. You, you, we didn't mention that you're an author and I, I see you have a great website with, where they can, people can listen to, uh, lectures. So fill sure. us in on that. Well, first, uh, for Ratio Christie, the Ratio Christie website, www.ratiochristi, R-A-T-I-O-C-H-R-I-S-T-I, which means the reason of Christ, www.ratiochristi.org. And my personal website for my wife and I is Rolling Stone Ministries, www.rollingstoneministries.org, and that has some of my blogs and has some of my materials there. And we encourage people to check out Ratio Christie to find out what we're doing. Get behind us. And if you have uh, listeners who have college students, find a Ratio Christie chapter at the local university. If they don't have one, contact us. We'll start one because we want the truth to prevail, and we want to put the best people there to reach our young folks. Absolutely. So now Rolling Stone Ministries, is that is this uh, some indication of, of your choice in music? <laughs> well, 
actually, I remember listening to the singing group and even met their guitar player, one of their guitar players a few years ago. No, that's a reference to the stone was rolled away. The tomb is empty. We serve a risen Savior. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So we picked that as to be a little more contemporary, controversial, but uh, edgy uh, name for the ministry my wife and I established that launched our international ministry about seven years ago. But uh, So that's where some of my blogs are. But that's, I think, indicative of where our heart is, that we want people to know Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because he is alive, we can be set free by faith in him. Great. Thank you, John, for being a guest on Evidence for Faith. God bless you guys. Well, I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was good!